Good morning. Uh, welcome to today's convo. My name is Yadira Figueroa, and I'm a graphic design major. My name is Cornelius Glass, and I'm a communication major. Uh, we are the fall 2017 China SST group. Each member of our 15 student group is here today, along with Beverly Lab and Dale Klassen. We spent our time in China in the city of Nanchan in Sichuan province. Nanchang would be considered a large city in the U.S., but only about six million residents, it is on the small side of China. As a group, we almost doubled the large number of foreigners in Nanchang. Um, China is the longest running study service term location for Goshen College. Um, with the first group going in 1980, we hope Goshen goes to China for many years to come. Um, today, we'll briefly share about different parts of our experience, including host families, learning about history and politics, studying the Chinese language, food, and teaching English in middle school and high schools. We hope you enjoyed the presentation. Go! Go! 
Hi, everybody. I'm Matthew Nassiger. I'm an interdisciplinaries major. And um, I'm Christy Sessa, and I'm a Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies major. And we will be sharing a little bit about the politics and history of China. So, to start, I think we all know China is ruled by a one-party system, the uh, Communist Party. Uh, it has about 80 million um, people in that party, but there are actually many other parties um, in China, but they tend to have a little bit less influence or power in the government. Um, so China's history in the recent years has been a little bit of a split between a search for stability and a kind of continuing revolution, you might call it, which found real form in the counter-revolution in which many different people were kind of accused of being against the government in different ways. Um, so in the kind of 80s towards the 90s, um, Deng Xiaoping kind of uh, instituted a number of economic reforms meant to transform the Chinese economy from more of a collectivized, um, centralized, planned economy towards something a little bit more privatized. And these reforms are actually continuing into our modern day and, as we know, have transformed China into a major economic power in the world. Uh, there are also a number of military reforms that have been instituted that have largely cut down on the number of Chinese um, people in the army. It has the largest military in the world, but in a way this has actually been seen as a little bit um, overlarge. So Xi Jinping has been cutting down troops, modernizing the military, and um, yeah, there are a number of Chinese political efforts that are uh, taking place all around the world, largely in Latin America and Africa. Um, there's a lot of tension going on in the South China Sea um, as China's uh, beginning to construct artificial islands and kind of there's a lot of territorial disagreements, not just with China, but many of the other nations in the area and with Japan. Um, so, yeah, in general, it's just clear that China's been moving from having a bunch of regional instability and more looking inward towards a more globalized outlook on the world. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to talk a bit about Chinese history. So China is one of the world's longest continuing civilizations. And um, because of that, like, I do not have the time to properly cover it. I could take the rest of the combos for the rest of my college career and still only be scratching the surface. So, um, it's so for thousands of years, China was ruled by, um, by different uh, dynasties of emperors. And um, for the oldest, like for modern China being the Qing Dynasty, which was the one who were the ones who built the uh, terracotta warriors. And if you, uh, if you go to the next slide, there's a the bit of a collage of things there. And um, on the bottom there is terracotta warriors that were made by the first Qing emperor. And um, <clears throat> they were discovered in the 1970s. And uh, however, to skip about a couple thousand years, in the early 20th century, there was the um, revolution that took down the final dynasty, which was named the Qing dynasty. And um, in 1911, there was a uh, sort of democratic leadership set up, but that was very tenuous and there was a split between the nationalists or the KMT and the communists, which um, finally came to a head after World War II with, um, the, with on, and, Oct and on October 1st, 1949, the People's Republic of China was born. And um, 
because the communists defeated the nationalists and the nationalists fled to Taiwan. And then after that, the leader, the main guy in power was Mao Zedong, who, while he instituted a lot of like uh, societal reforms, there's a saying in China that Mao was really great when it came to doing society and politics, but not so great at economics, which was in part why you let, which eventually led to the uh, great, the great famines and the Cultural Revolution, which was when a lot of um, intellectualism and a long, a lot of uh, Western ideas were sort of like repressed. And that lasted until Mao's death in the 1970s. And then that was the rise of um, Deng Xiaoping, who helped open up China to the world and kind of modernized the economy. And um, call, he called it socialism with Chinese characteristics, which basically means there's a one-party system in power, but, and, but there is still some privatization. And some of the pictures on above, I was in the city of Guang'an for service, which is the birthplace of Deng Xiaoping. And my host mom and I took a little field trip one day to his birthplace. And that's me there, and also a statue of him with a bunch of marigolds. And um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, hi, I'm Carter. I'm a junior English and computer science major. Um, so the nice thing about China SST is that when they ask you to wear clothes from your host country, you can pretty much wear anything that you already own. Um, something that people don't really understand about SST is the amount of time that you spend, with, uh, spend in language classes. We spent around three hours every single day during study with our language teachers. One in particular that became a celebrity among our group was Pearl. Pearl helped us with everything, whether it was saving us from translation crises or telling us what to order from Chinese menus. I remember one time a few of us had felt weak after a long flag-raising ceremony, and Pearl came rushing into class with drinks and snacks to replenish our health. We actually have Pearl here through WeChat which is what we use to communicate with each other in China and what we use now to talk with our host families from the United States. So let's give her a call.
We'll try one more time. Hopefully we can get Pearl. She's worth it. Can you hear? Hello, can Hi, can you hear? <laughs> Hello? Hi, Pearl. Hello? Can I try again? Oh. Oh, we'll, see if, we'll see if it works. If not, you're off the hook. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Can you hear? <laughs> oh. Anyways, oh. yeah, since um, other people better. have... Hello? <laughs> oh, she's still here. <laughs> Hi, can you hear, hear. now? <laughs> okay, how about I call you again? <laughs> what? Um... Can I call you again? You can try one more time, sure. <laughs> hey, can you hear? Yeah, it's better? Yeah, great. Hi, good to have you here. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, what was your best memory from having us in China? Uh, my best memory? Uh, I think all the Goshen students are very uh, smart and study hard on uh, all our lessons. And second, I think uh, all they are very, always be curious about new things and always try new things. I think that's uh, very good, and, and uh, the uh, all of they can get very well with Chinese family, teachers, and and make many Chinese friends. I think that's very good, and we all had a very. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, since other people have to uh, have things to say, we're gonna let. Pearl go, but she was phenomenal our entire time there, and she would really do anything for us. Um, and I think, you know, I've had a number of language teachers um, in the, over the course of my life um, learning Spanish and then Chinese, and Pearl was the best one that I've ever had, hands down, among any of them. So, yeah, you got a small preview of what she was like. Good morning. My name is Mia Graber-Miller. I'm a communications major. I'm Amy Castillo, and I'm a psychology major. So Amy and I are going to talk about our host families and emerging cultures. So I will start. 
Um, so I just wanted to say a word about our host families, both in Nanchang and then out on service when we were in the provinces. Um, I want to acknowledge that we are so incredibly grateful um, for our family's hospitality, their welcoming of us into their homes, and the time they spent with us teaching us about their culture and the history of China, and that our host families truly played a significant part in shaping our SST experience. For many of us, we had a host mother and father and a sibling present in the household. For some of us, we even had a grandparent, aunt, uncle, or cousin in the household with us too. Uh, in my second family, I was fortunate to have three younger brothers, including two infants. Um, they were six months year old, uh, Jindo and Yindo, and then an eight-year-old named Jimmy. My host mother was extremely open to talking about anything and very progressive in her views. Um, she also wanted to know how we do things and how we think in the United States. And uh, she and I would talk for hours. I still keep in touch with her, um, and someday I would absolutely love to go back and visit her and her family. Um, I think it's fair to say for all of us that our host families have shaped our SST experience in one way or another, and our SST experience would not have been the same if it wasn't for them. So mine's more of a little bit of a story, but... Um... I'll never forget the first time I really felt at home. It had only been a couple days since my arrival to China, and my host parents were in the kitchen preparing dinner. I sat in my usual spot at the table, still too shy to speak without being spoken to. My host mother approached me and began to ask me the ingredients on the, if the ingredients on the table could be found in Mexico. I nodded, and she, and she began to ask what some of them were called in Spanish. So I said, elote, chile, y calabaza. So what she said, you, me, Hujiao, and Nangua. So the night went on with question after question in which they fed me their delicious food and in return I fed them my culture. Later on, as I was getting ready for bed, I realized the power on what I was getting, uh, on the simple, on the, behind the simple act that I had just, that we had just gone through. As I went to say my usual wanan, which means good night, um, to my mother and my brother and my father, I found them huddled around my mother's phone with a joy in their eyes that I didn't understand. And then my parents and my family proceeded to surprise me with one of the most beautiful buenas noches that I have ever heard in the most beautiful broken Spanish I had ever heard. <laughs> and then from then on, we continued to share our stories, our traditions, jokes, food, and culture, only to learn that we weren't as different as we thought we were. We grew closer, and I became their daughter, and they became my mama and my baba. But most importantly, we became four different people in love with two very different countries and two very different cultures. On the other hand, I found myself struggling to communicate with my service family, in the sense that they spoke no English whatsoever, yet we found a way to connect with each other. See, we might have not been able to understand everything that we said to one another, but there was one thing that was very clear to us. We loved each other's food. I remember making tacos for my family and watching them eat one after another was a sight to behold. Somehow, it felt like every bite they, with every bite they became aware of my culture and who I was and where I came from. But in my mind, I still wondered, could that really be possible? I got my answer the very same night when my grandmother came into my room, sat beside me, and thanked me for showing her a part of the world she may never get to know. And in the end, whether it was during stud study or service, 
I had the honor to share my culture and learn from one, and I couldn't have had better people to do it with. Shanka. Hello, my name is Andrew Nussbaum, and I am a TESOL major with minors in art and writing. Uh, my name's Lexis, and I'm a biology major. I'm Christian, and I'm an interdisciplinary major. So what you just heard is a traditional greeting for a class. Um, it's a kind of ritual that we shared with our teachers both during our crash course in Mandarin Chinese here at Goshen during May term and when we went to China West Normal University in Nanchong. Uh, it roughly means class begin. You hear the students respond, hello teacher, and then the teacher says, hello everyone, please have a seat. It isn't always said in classrooms today um, in China, but it's still a small ritual that the teachers wanted to share with us, and we gladly shared that moment with them almost every day. Um, Chinese was hard. Learning the language of Mandarin was hard. I'd be lying to you if I said anything different. But besides being hard, it was also beautiful and challenging and deep and profound at points and a great source of laughter when learning it with such an amazing group of people. We are, we're lucky enough to have four very generous teachers helping us at China West Normal University. Um, we were split into two classes, higher level and lower level, during our first half. And, and they were happy to laugh with us and cringe with us as we stumbled through tones and characters and new phrases and words. Chinese, as I mentioned, is a very deep language and it has a magnificent history. Um, Lexis will be telling you a little bit about some of the tools we used for learning better um, while trying to master or grasp even the smallest bit of this language. Okay, so like Andrew said, um, Chinese was really hard to learn. Um, and I think everybody sort of has the preconception that it's really hard, I think partly because it's so different from English. Um, there are characters in Chinese which we just don't have. We have an alphabetized um, language, um, and it sounds so different too. Um, so I think one of the things that makes Chinese really unique is the use of pinyin. Um, so the next slide, I mean, I don't think this will work. If you could go to the next slide. Um, pinyin is basically a way of transliterating Chinese. So the characters are really beautiful to look at and they're like an art form, really nice to write too. Um, but the problem with them is that somebody learning Chinese can't look at a character and know what it is or how to pronounce it. So pinyin is on the bottom there. So the character we have is wo. Um, and the only reason I know how to pronounce it is because of the pinyin. So if you're learning Chinese, it's really useful um, for that. Um, and when we started learning Chinese, we began with the pinyin. And that was basically so that we would know how to listen and to speak Chinese well. That was the intention. Um, but when we got to China, most things were written with the characters. So it was really a struggle to get around, um, to find restaurants, to order food, to read signs, because it was all in characters. 
Um, and I remember one time Elsa and I went to a restaurant during our lunch break. Um, we had wanted to eat noodles with eggs. Um, we thought that we knew the right opinion. We thought we knew how to say it. We thought we had the right characters. And when the waitress asked us what we wanted, we told her. Um, she pointed to something on the menu, which we assumed was the noodles and eggs, because we thought we were, I don't know, proficient at Chinese. Um, but when the food came out, we found that we had accidentally ordered pig intestines. Um, it was an interesting experience, to say the least, but I think that was when I realized how important um, both the character aspect and the opinion, um, how important they both were for learning Chinese. So, as Lexis mentioned, I think um, most people think somewhat immediately of uh, Chinese characters when they, when they think of the language uh, and one of the difficult parts of the language. Another thing that comes to mind is the tonal system. So, there are four major tones in Mandarin. Hey, it worked this time. Um, and I'll use the word ma, as you can see on the giant slides, um, to, to demonstrate some of these tones. The first tone is high and flat, pronounced ma. The second tone is a rising tone, which is similar to a questioning tone in English. We use it over the course of a sentence, but um, pronounced here would be ma. The third tone is a falling rising tone, pronounced ma. And the fourth tone is a falling tone, a sharp falling tone, pronounced ma. <clears throat> There's also a neutral tone that you can see there, which is uh, just pronounced ma, <laughs> ma. Um, it's hard not to put tones on them sometimes, but anyway. Um, you may notice that each of these ma's has a different meaning according to the chart. And we actually learned that in Mandarin, there are a ridiculous number of homonyms um, or homophones, uh, words that are pronounced the same way but have totally different meanings. And it turns out this is because that because of uh, another interesting aspect of Mandarin, which is the way syllables are constructed. Um, every, character, every character in Mandarin, like the ones you see there, can be pronounced in a single syllable, which is composed of an initial sound and a final sound, essentially. So for ma, you have m, a, ma, um, and that, so the initial sound m and the final sound a come together to create the the sound ma. Uh, but since every character can only be one syllable, and because of the sounds that they have to work with to create these syllables, the initials and finals, there are only so many combinations. And so it turns out there are only about 400 possible ways to combine the sounds to create a syllable in Mandarin. So if you, you know, multiply this by the four or five tones we have here, you have 1,600 or 2,000 um, possible syllables. If you compare this to English, in English there are more than 10,000 possible syllables. So you can see, even just from that, that there are going to be many more homonyms in Mandarin than there will be in English. This is part of why characters are so important, uh, because you have many words that sound like you're saying the exact same thing, but characters will help you differentiate because each word has a unique character. Um, one cool example of this is, um, or famous example of this, is this poem, which uh, is written using only one pronunciation um, with various tones and many, many different characters. <clears throat> Each part of this is shi. And so the first two lines read shi, 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 sh
A poet named Shur lived in a stone house and liked to eat lions, and he vowed to eat 10 of them. <laughs> you can look it up if you want to find out what happens to the poet. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and we So, learning Chinese had its challenges. <laughs> um, I personally went with the determination to learn, but I also went with the understanding that there was nothing I could really do in three months to become good enough to actually communicate effectively. Still, I feel accomplished, and I think all of my SSTers would also feel accomplished in what we've done with the time that was given to us. It, it was shown in the small victories, um, small victories that I made and I watched everyone else make. Small things like being able to say what floor you're going to or understand the question about what floor you're going to on the elevator. Or for me, on the last day of service, being able to walk down the street with a friend that I had been starting to get to know and being able to speak all in Chinese, um, switching between Sichuanhua, which is the local dialect of Sichuan province, and then Putonghua, which is Mandarin Chinese. And just the small things like that really made the experience of learning the language amazing and made us feel like we did something. Um, we all struggled with the language and we had different experiences trying to speak it. But I'm pretty confident that my group did an amazing job in taking on the challenge. And I couldn't have imagined going through learning the language or going through SST without such an amazing group of people. So thank you. Uh, my name is Elsa Lance, and I am a writing and TESOL double major. And I'm Emily Kaufman, and I'm an interdisciplinary major. And if you go to the next slide, I believe, we're going to be talking about food. Or, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, so there were so many different kinds of dishes and meals that we had. Um, but we're going to just touch on some of the most common things that we had. So in this slide here, you can see what's called hot pot or Um And this was usually served around a table, like you can see in the picture, um, with a big pot of oil um, in the center. And usually the pots were split up into two different sections. The one side you can see being um, red and very spicy. Um, and then the other side was more like a broth. And so um, what you would get around the table were different parts of animals and um, vegetables as well. And those would go into the pot, stay there for, I don't know, a couple minutes or so, however, however long. Um, and then you would pick them out. Um, and then we would also get a little, a smaller bowl that would be filled with um, oil and garlic and sometimes cilantro, and you would dip the vegetables and the pieces of meat into the oil and eat it. Um, and then in the other picture is the oil actually being made. Elsa took this in Chongqing. If you go to the next slide, um, another popular thing that we had um, after mealtime, our host families would usually serve us fruit. Um, and so this is a typical uh, fruit stand, you could say. And I'd say that we probably had each one of those fruits at one point. Um, pomegranates, lots of different things. If you go to the next slide, here's some funny pictures of some fruit. So the one um, is my host dad, uh, Derek, and he 
um, carved this apple for me, and I thought it was really cool. Um, and then the other one is Lexus with a, what was called, I believe, I'm remembering correctly, a yutsa, which is um, kind of similar to a grapefruit in taste, um, but she liked, I guess, had to wear that on her head for a little bit. <laughs> um, and if you go to the next slide, we'll have. Um, so these are just some other things that we had pretty frequently. Um, one food that we ate a lot was new romien, um, which translates to beef noodles. That's the big picture there. Um, so Lexis touched on this a little bit, but menus were hard to read. They were all in characters. Um, and so I personally would memorize just a couple things, and I would know that that's like the dish that I want to eat. And so one of the things that I memorized was the characters for the beef noodles. And I knew that going into um, just about any noodle store, I would be able to order those. Um, when we were at restaurants, we would often also order dishes, and I don't have any pictures, but they would be things like um, scrambled eggs with tomatoes, or there was a potato dish that we liked to eat. Um, there was twice-cooked pork, um, just a number of different things that you would eat with rice, um, and we all really enjoyed those things as well. Um, and then jiaotza were also pretty popular. So jiaotza are dumplings, and the one on the top left, um, those were argue, argued to be the best dumplings that we had. Um, they were served at a street cart that was right across the street from the university where we were studying. And you could order them um, fried like they are in the picture, or you could get them steamed, and you put different toppings on top. And then the bottom right corner, um, those are also dumplings, but they are ones that I made with my host parents. Uh, so many of us on study um, were able to get the chance to make dumplings with our host families. Um, so my host dad took me to an open-air market, and we bought the meat and the vegetables and the wrappers, and then we took them back to the apartment, and my host mom showed me how to like mix all of the ingredients together and how to fold the wrappings into making the dumplings. Um, and it was a really wonderful experience just because I was able to take that back with me um, and make them for my parents here in the U.S. Hi, I'm Sky. I'm an environmental science major. Oh, one, two, four. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, there we go. All right, so I was supposed to be presenting this with my teaching partner, Andrew, but he couldn't be here today. But that is a picture of a normal classroom that we taught when we were on service. Um, as you can see, uh, we didn't have very much technology in our classrooms. And we also never knew which classroom we were going to go into. So every day, me and Andrew would show up to school together, and we'd get a couple classrooms that we had never taught before that we were supposed to just go talk to them in English. Um, so that caused a bit of um, winging it on our part, which is what I'm doing this morning to show you a little bit of how our classes start. Um, <laughs> so every time we would go into a classroom, we taught classes from middle school to high school. So we didn't know what English level they were going to be at, if they could understand anything we said, or if they were going to be like better at English than us. So every day when we would show up, we would walk into the classroom and say, hi, we're from America. I'm Skye, and this is Andrew. And whatever they said back to us, we'd be like, OK, they know English. Or if they looked at us, like, we'd be like, OK, cool. Um, and just write some stuff on the board and hope they understood. <sighs> But the main thing that we did, because we only taught each classroom once, or maybe twice, is we just let them ask us questions. There wasn't much that we could actually do in like a structured lesson about teaching English grammar or important English topics. 
Um, we just wanted to let them have a little bit of time to ask us questions, mostly about America. They wanted to know if we like Taylor Swift and that kind of stuff. That was the number one asked question for us. Um, but when we did um, move on from the questions, mostly the only thing we did was play games. Um, because, well, let me, maybe, can, I, can we go to the next slide? That is an example of our teaching schedule. Um, as you can see, it's just kind of, you can't see that, but it's just random classes in different um, buildings with different numbers. This was a huge school, so each class had about 80 students in it, and there were like four different buildings, or maybe more than that. We only taught in four buildings, but there was just a huge amount of students, and they were at school from uh, 7 a.m. every day to 10 p.m. every night, um, like Monday through Sunday. They got three hours off Sunday afternoons. So what we were trying to mimic in our classroom was a little bit more of a relaxed situation to like let them see more like what American school was like. So basically, we just, <laughs> we just played a lot of games with them. Um, so we did Hangman a lot. They loved that game. And Simon Says. So we weren't really like teaching proper English, but we were teaching a lot of like slang and having fun with the kids and letting them have uh, 50 minutes of a break throughout their day. Um, if you can go to the next slide. So mainly we were there to just be friends with the kids. So this is a, me and Andrew with one of our classes um, after they had run up and given us hugs and asked for our autographs. We asked if we could get a picture with them. Um, and then this is a picture of Matt being attacked by a bunch of kids wanting his autograph and his hugs. Um, and as you can see there, we're on a turf field. So we only worked four hours a day, but these kids are at school for, I don't even know, that's a lot, a lot of hours. So we would just be messing around on the school lawn, playing Frisbee and making friends with people. So yeah, the majority of our day wasn't spent at school like the kids. We were teaching for a little bit, and then we'd go play Frisbee with kids for a couple hours, and then go hang out in tea shops. And that was basically all we did on service, um, was just making friends with people. Um, I think I have one more slide, uh, just showing that even though we were working four hours a day, mostly we were just having fun. Um, this was our service group, checking out the city on our bridge and studying hard for our journals and um, final papers. Hi, uh, I'm Abraham Medellin. I made a short video that uh, reflects the city of Nanchong's at our first place before we went to our service uh, locations. And it's kind of just about uh, the celebratory side of uh, Nanchong, which was a big city. And that's all I have to say. You can play the video.
We encourage everyone to read about China in the news. It is a fascinating place with great influence on our world today. Uh, thank you for joining us and have a great day.